Hi friends, I'm Ron Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for episode three of the Jesus Society podcast. I'm chuckling a little bit. This is the uh, this is the second time I've started to record this episode. My uh, my dog was was in here, um, and I started talking. I was getting really into it, and um, all of a sudden I heard through the speakers, she's over there just licking herself, and I thought. If I can hear that, you can hear that, and you probably don't want to hear that. <laughs> so I had to stop, move her to the other room, shut the door, and uh, now uh, we're going to try to do this for real. <laughs> and uh, maybe without the licking, you probably don't want to hear. So, okay, um, today uh, we're going to continue here on episode three. Um, we're going to tr- continue trying to unpack um, my understanding uh, of the story of the Bible and the kingdom of God. And uh, last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's episode if you have not. Uh, if you're just joining us and you're popping in right here, um, go back and at least listen to last week's um, because we laid some groundwork that I think is important. Um, we we talked about last week how God created you and me, so that he could love us. Uh, he created us with the intent that that we experience the fullness of his love in community with him and with others. And we need to start with that. Um, as we read through the rest of Scripture, as we like anything we see God doing or not doing uh, after creation has to be filtered, I think, through through an understanding of what is what is he trying to accomplish here in this world, right? And I think a lot of things will be easier to understand and easier to grasp if, we, if we've got that sort of in the back of our mind. All right, God's aiming, however this might look, God is aiming at this, right? So everything that God has done or is doing in the world um, has the goal of bringing this world into this beautiful, loving community, um, which we know is the kingdom of God. Um, so we said last week um, that um, there's a lot of twists and turns as we move through the Old Testament in that story. But, but again, it's important, I think, that we keep that story in mind. So today, I want us to go back um, to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And I want us to think today about the creation account in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I want to I want to say as a bit of a caveat as we start this that there is a lot there is a lot that we could talk about here and we are not going to even attempt to talk about everything that we that there is to cover in Genesis one through three uh, it is a rich 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 diamond mind of theological material in there and I want you to I want to let you know up front that I'm going to be painting with a fairly large brush here. And this is going to be a little bit longer of an episode, but even so, we're painting with some kind of big brushes. And I and I say that, and I put this little caveat in here, for the benefit of um, any seminary people who might be listening to this, because the quickest way to incite a group of seminarians is to paint with a, with a broad brush. Um, I have a friend who's fond of saying that college professors as as a whole are a group of people who think otherwise. <laughs> and I think that's true. Um, so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skim over a lot of important stuff here. Um, uh, 
to get to what I think is some more important stuff. Um, and because I am a card-carrying conflict avoider, uh, I want to add this little disclaimer. And that is to say, look, I, I know the complexities and nuances of Genesis 1 through 3. I know its background as compared to other ancient Near Eastern texts. I get it. I really do. And I know what I'm saying here is a broad overview and not in any way an exhaustive treatment of every issue we might talk about or every issue that might even be important with regard to Genesis 1 through 3. But this is a podcast, not a seminary class. And it is a podcast aimed at people who have not been to seminary and who have maybe no real interest in in that level of depth, okay? So I think if you understand uh, kind of the way that I think about things, I think it, if you understand the path the river takes, you can more easily come back later and find the holes and the riffles that hold the fish, right? So there's a little fishing metaphor there for you. So just understand that. Um, if you're listening to this and, I, and you get irritated because I don't cover all the stuff you think is important, and you may be right, um, just hold off on the rebuttals and snarky comments about how I left something out. Okay, give me just a little grace here. So, okay. Spent a lot of time trying to avoid conflict there. <laughs> Maybe didn't need to do that. So, Genesis 1 through 3. Um, I would encourage you um, to, uh, if you have your Bible handy, if you're in a place where you can read, um, stop the podcast or pause it at this point. Uh, read, read through Genesis 1 through 3 just so you kind of get a get it in your head, get a, a sort of an idea of how the narrative flows through those first three chapters. Um, and then then come back and, and we can talk about it. So I'm assuming you just read it. The first thing is you as you read through the first three chapters of, of Genesis and as you get into chapter one, the first thing we learn is that God is the creator. Now let me say as strongly as I can, that the point of Genesis 1 is not to give us any scientific information um, uh, whatsoever about how or when the heavens and the earth were, were created. This is, this is scripture, not science, okay? And any attempt to extract modern scientific information from these passages is, is just wrongheaded, um, and, and I say that as someone who spent a good number of years studying and teaching Christian evidences, okay? Um, the point of Scripture that it's trying to make, at least here, is that Israel's God is the one who created everything, as opposed to some other nation's God, okay? Israel's God, Yahweh, is the creator of heaven and earth, and what the Creator God creates is good. Um, in in verses uh, three through twenty five of of Genesis chapter one, God creates light and sea and land and vegetation, sun and moon, fish and birds and other wildlife, and He pronounces all of it good. And then in verses twenty six through thirty one, God creates man and woman, and it says that's very good indeed. So. God's creation is good. Everything God's, God creates is good because God is good, okay? 
Verse 27 says, God created man in his own image, created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. And the text kind of goes out of its way to say that man, God created man and woman both in the image of God. Now the words image and likeness that are that show up there, um, those are those are words that are found a, a lot in the ancient Near Eastern world in reference to the likeness of kings. Okay, so in this in this text, man and woman bear the image of the king. The Bible is saying here that if you want to think about God in some concrete way, look at man. That means that there is something very much like God in you and me, and it has nothing to do with flesh and blood, okay? Um, why do you think the, the message of God resonates in our hearts? Because God made us like him. Uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God put eternity in our hearts, okay? So there's, there's something about the way he designed us, the way he built us, that is very much like him, okay? Now, God gave Adam and Eve two commandments. Uh, the first is to be fruitful, uh, multiply, fill the earth. It is the one command of God that man has consistently obeyed, all right? That's been an easy one. The second command, and this one is really, really, really important, and it's not, I, I think a lot of times when we read over this, we, we kind of just gloss over it, and we don't see how important it is. But the second command is the command to rule. In chapter 1, verse 26, again in verse 28, it says that man and woman are to, are to rule and to subdue the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, all the creatures that crawl on the earth. Uh, in chapter, when we get into chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 15 says that God placed them in the garden to tend it and to watch over it. Okay. Now, that, that word rule can come across to a lot of us in the 21st century world as kind of harsh and ruthless and uh, heavy-handed. That's not the idea at all. Okay, um, The role of humanity here is to, is to rule, to tend, to care for um, on God's behalf. God is depicted as a king. And he is using language here very appropriate to, to a throne room. And God is delegating authority over his domain to others. And we have a, so we have a regent and we have a vice regent. God is the regent. Man is the vice regent. God has delegated authority to man that emanates from his own authority. Okay, God's people who he loves, who he wants to be in intimate fellowship with, are always invited into the task of reigning over God's good creation, tending it and caring for it. Now, that is, that is important, and we need to keep that in mind because that theme is going to come back again and again and again as we move through the Old Testament and into the New. We have a role in this world, okay? And the, and, and the role that God has given his people in this world involves tending and caring and nurturing and shepherding right we have some um, we have some purpose in this world that is that is good uh, I'm going to use the word blessing because we're going to come back to that probably next week 
and talk about the, the idea of blessing, right? So we have some responsibilities in this world, okay? Um, people are to, God's people, God's people are to function in this world in a, in a caring, nurturing, tending capacity, all right? That's what it means to rule, all right? Now, that was, that was, that was chapter one, and that was, man, that was quick. Uh, we're, we're 12 minutes into this, and that was quick. And we skipped over a lot of stuff. As we move into chapter 2, I should say that, that there are some details in chapter 2, especially re- revolving around the creation of Eve, that are an expanded version of what we read in chapter 1. Some people get um, really kind of tripped out over the fact that chapter 2 seems a little similar, like it's a second creation account, right? And some people get really, really bogged down in, well, why do we have two creation accounts? And why is, why is this one a little different than that one? And oh my gosh, they're, they're in conflict. No, 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 no. Chapter two is, is, is an expansion, right? Uh, of of what we read in chapter one, focusing in on what I think God considers the most important part, and that is man and woman. Okay, um, man and woman is in chapter one in the creation account. Uh, the creation of man and woman is is um, is the last piece of of a long list of things that God creates. Um, we're going to hone in on that in chapter two and expand on that and and um, bring a little more relief. Um, to that part of the story that God wants to wants to highlight. Okay, so understand that uh, in the garden, in the garden, not until we get to the garden, God takes one of Adam's ribs, and from it makes woman. Okay, and somebody said one time that the reason Eve is called woman is because when Adam saw her for the first time, he said, "Whoa, man!" But I'm bump. Okay. Bad joke. Okay, in chapter 2, um, verse 8, we're told that God planted a garden in Eden, and there he placed the man. So somewhere somewhere within this good and blessed world that God has made, God plants a garden. It's, a, it's like a terrarium in the midst of the rest of the world. Um, there, is a, there is a river flowing through it, and when it exits the other side, it branches into four streams. Uh, all the four streams are named. Um, there's two of them that we don't have any idea where they are, what they are. Uh, the Pishon and the Gihon. Um, we don't know anything about those. We do know about the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, you can look on a map today and find the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. That does not at all mean that that's where they were flowing, you know, however many years ago. Um, the Mississippi is not flowing exactly where it was flowed, flowing even 200 years ago. Rivers change courses all the time. Um, so we, we, don't, we don't know. Now, we have no idea where this garden was. Uh, an untold amount of investigation has gone in to try to figure that out. But apart from saying that it was probably somewhere in Mesopotamia, we are pretty well clueless, Okay. But that's not the important point about this garden, is identifying it on a map. The important point is that this garden is not man's but God's. 
And there is some really important imagery here in the idea of God planting a garden. Uh, and again, it ties into the world of the ancient Near East. Okay, In the ancient Near East, kings planted big opulent gardens. And in those gardens, they often planted a, a cornucopia of imported trees of, of all kinds. Okay, so, so the presence here in this story um, of a garden of God in Genesis 2 and 3 would have been seen by anybody in the ancient Near East as an indication that, oh, this God is a king. Okay? Because kings plant these kind of gardens. Now, inside this garden, here's what it looks like. Okay? Mankind appears to enjoy full and free fellowship with God. God is there. He is walking in the cool of the day, we're told. Mankind walks with God. You know, there's full, free personal fellowship with God. Mankind experiences unending life because of their proximity to the tree of life, which we'll talk about that in a minute. Mankind has the the freedom to exercise some choice, and we'll talk about that a little more in a minute. And again, as we said, man, mankind is to tend and to keep this garden of God. Okay, So, in the garden, Adam and Eve enjoy this beautiful fellowship with the Father. Um, you know the song, He walks with them and he talks with them and he tells them they are his own. That's my, that's my singing voice. Um, but that's the, that's the picture, right? Adam and Eve have this this relationship in this beautiful place. They're enjoying the fullness of fellowship with the Father, the King. And they are serving the King as his vice regents, tending and caring for the good and blessed creation that the Creator King has made. All right? Now, in addition to the tree of life, there's another tree. There's lots of trees, but there's two big ones that, that are worth pointing out. The tree of life and this other tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is a tree of moral alternatives. Um, good and evil are the, are the polarities here. Okay, And God tells the man and the woman in chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die, he says. Okay? So there's some teeth in this command, all right, in this directive. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. In the meantime, there's a snake in the garden. Now, all kinds of questions um, that, that come up here. Um, like, where does the serpent come from? Um, why does God allow the presence of evil in the midst of his good creation? And while it, and we're not going to address all those here because um, they're, they're big, big rabbit holes. While it clearly seems that God created the serpent, uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says that flat out. It says the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. Okay, 
So God created the serpent. That's clear. In spite of the the, the fact that that's clear, in addition to that, I, I want to just say we, we always need to be cautious a little bit. Um, this is one of the things I, I see a lot, and I I'm always pointing the, pointing this out to people. We need to be very cautious about trying to force Scripture to answer questions that Scripture was never written to answer. We we do this all the time. And like a great number of things that we might like to know the answer to, Scripture doesn't give us all the answers we might like about this. Okay, There is a lot more to say about the problem of evil in the world, but that will have to wait for another episode. And we will talk about that because it is important. And if you're bogged down uh, under some um, heavy weight of, of misery and suffering, you're you're probably wondering where God is. You're probably you know those those questions those things are real and they're important and they need to be talked about and we will talk about them. But we're not going to do that here. We're going to do that today. Um, but the truth about all this is there there is there is always and there has always been something a little bit mysterious about the forces of darkness in this world. There's, we don't know everything we'd like to know about why they're there, how they function. There are, there are things we know, but there's a lot we don't know. Okay? Um, this serpent, though, in the garden, presents Adam and Eve with a choice regarding this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this always seems to bring up the question of free will, right? And, and what I'll say about that is that it, it seems to me that a certain degree of freedom is necessary if one is to really love. It, because love is a free, free gift, right? Um, I, I read, um, this is a little, this is bizarre. This is really bizarre. Um, I read something last week that they are... Um, they are they are creating um, robots now, uh, over mostly in Asia, that are to function as surrogate. If you can if you can believe this, surrogate sex partners for for dudes. Now, that's just bizarre, right? But who wants? Who wants to be any in any kind of relationship with something that can't love you back? Right? Forget about sex for a minute. Um, do you want to be married to someone who's forced to love you because they have no other choice? No. No. God doesn't either. I, I think God wants his creation, his people, the people that he creates. He wants them to be free to love him out of their own volition, the same way he loves them out of his own volition. There's only one way I know to get that, and that is to allow people to have a certain degree of free will. And part of that means you've got the choice to not love. In fact, you've got the choice to hate, right? Um, 
So I think a certain degree of freedom is is necessary in the world if if love is to really be part of it in the way that God wants it to be. And because that's so, creation is always invested with a certain degree of freedom. Now, having said that, I also want to say that I think uh, something much more important to the big picture of the Bible is that responsibility seems to always carry a greater emphasis than freedom. In other words, God loves working through people who are learning to make good, wise, healing choices. Okay? Um, Adam and Eve have the opportunity to do that. But this choice offered to Adam and Eve, you have to really understand and pay attention to what the language that the serpent uses, right? What he's, what he's promising, what he's implying, okay? Um, in reality, this, this, this promise or this, this choice that the serpent offers to Adam and Eve strikes at the very heart of who God is, right? So, so prior to this, what is Adam and Eve's experience of God? Who is he? He's a good God. He's a loving God. Everything he created is good. He is, he is living in fellowship with, with man and woman. He is giving them authority over his creation. Um, it's Everything they know about him is good. The serpent comes in and he introduces some doubt into their mind about that. Okay, He presents a narrative to Adam and Eve in which God is holding something good back from them, okay? And that is clearly his implication in what he says in Genesis 3, verse 5. He says, God knows that when you eat that, that, that fruit of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's the implication here? The implication, as, as it, I mean, put yourself in Adam and Eve's shoes, Right? They they're just off the turnip truck, right? They 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 don't they don't know everything there is to know. But the implication of this statement is, when you eat it, your eyes will be open. Well, are my not? I guess my eyes are open now. Like I don't, I'm not seeing everything clear. You will be like God, he says. Well, you mean I can be more than I am? You'll know good and evil. Wait, you mean there's good that I don't know about? You mean God's holding something back from me? That's the implication. Now, he doesn't come right out and say that, but he puts that out there because he knows that's it. This is how this works, folks. This is the way, this is the way Satan operates. And he always operates this way. And he always most of temptation is involved uh, or or um, uh, tries to get us to see God in a different light, to see him as less than he is. It always casts doubt into his goodness or his power or his love. Right? You just think about all the temptations that there are and they all they all deal with this the same way. They're either casting um, casting doubt on God's goodness 
on his power or on his love. He's not taking care of you the way that you want him to take care of you. You're missing out. He's holding something back. He's not giving you the the good things that you ought to have. He's he's not taking care of you well. All those things, right? That's what the serpent is implying, okay? Um, God is holding back something good from them that they that they could have just by reaching out and taking it. In other words, if you will just kind of think for yourself for a minute, if you'll exercise your own independence a little bit, you can just reach out and have this, and you'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. Your eyes will be open, right? So the question comes down to, who are they going to trust? And who are we going to trust? The God who made them? Or one of their, who, who has always been good to them? Or one of their fellow created beings? Same choice is offered to us every day. Who are we going to trust? The God who made us? And who proclaims his love for us? Or somebody else. Adam and Eve chose poorly. And this is where this is where the language of sin kind of comes into play. We really need to understand that properly. Sin, sin is a failure. But it's not it's a it's failure rather than breaking. It, it's not this is not just about breaking rules. Sometimes we we talk about sin as though it's just merely, well, here's this list of rules and you've, you've, you've just failed, you know, you failed to follow them, right? It's pure disobedience. And yes, I know there's disobedience here. But sin is, sin is more than that, okay? Um, sin is uh, the, so we're reading Genesis and Genesis was written in Hebrew. I'm going to use a Greek word from the New Testament for sin, Um the, the the word for for sin in in the New Testament Greek is hamartia, and it literally carries this idea of missing the mark. Okay, it's like um, I I have spent a great deal of time in my life as an archer, as a bow hunter. Um, I love to I love to shoot archery. Always have from the time I was a teenager. So it's like shooting an arrow at the target and missing the mark. Okay. So that's that's this idea in in sin. It's it's you're aiming at something, but you but you miss, right? So the question is, what's the target here? The target, I think, is reflecting God's image. Adam and Eve were, were created in the image of God. Okay, and and you and I are too. We're we're created in God's image. We bear the image of God, and that carries some responsibilities with it. In the world, right? Um, and whenever we're tempted to sin, what what is actually going on? I think is there's 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 something that we're to be doing or being in whatever given situation that is that will that will honor God in the world that will uh, that, that will bless others that will you know all the things that God cares about, right? And sin draws us away from that. And it presents us with a with a cheap alternative. So that as as we give in to that, we end up colluding 
with the forces of destruction and chaos and darkness. And then we begin, we basically give give our human authority over to those forces, over to what the New Testament will call the principalities and powers. That's exactly what Adam and Eve did. They they ended up in by 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 listening to the serpent, by by taking his side of things. They ended up in collusion with him. And they and I and I know they didn't realize this. But they gave him a certain a certain authority over them that they had just taken away from God. Okay, um, the result of all that is sin, and that means we're 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 bound up in a tight grip. And Jesus in the New Testament, in dying for our sin, will release that grip of the power. That's the that is the central thing in the crucifixion. And the result of all this, failing to trust God, this, this asserting of our independence, this breaking allegiance, failing to bear the image of God in the world, is that creation is now disordered. And there are several ways that that is manifested here in Genesis chapter 3. The most noticeable of these is that relationships are strained. And that's true with man's relationship with God, and it's true with man's relationship with woman. So let's, let's take man's relationship with God first. It's interesting that immediately after eating this fruit, shame enters the picture. Okay, Adam and Eve hear the sound of God walking in the cool of the evening, and they hide from him. They have never had to hide from God at all, ever. And when God calls out to the man, where are you? And of course, God knows where they are, Right? Adam admits that, he says, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. That's shame, and it creates distance. Shame, sin always creates distance between us and God. But, but don't miss this, okay? It is not God who is hiding from man. It is man who is hiding from God. Sin causes us to pull away from God. It always does, to hide from him, to distance ourselves from him. It does not cause God to pull away from us. Notice that God is searching for them, calling to them. Do you see that? That's important. Now, there is a verse in Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, that probably most of you have heard. And it, it reads like this in part. I'm going to just read the first part. Habakkuk 1.13, it says, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Ever heard that verse? There's more to that verse, but that's usually where we stop, and we have come away with the notion from that that when we sin, God turns his back on us, that he, that he simply, because of his nature, because he's too pure and too holy, that he just cannot have anything to do with us because he is too pure for us in our now tainted state. Folks, that idea has to die. Scripture always pictures God as the rescuer, as the one who is actively seeking for and, and rescuing the lost. Again, as we said last week, God's overarching desire in creation is to draw us to himself, 
so that we can experience a, a beautiful, loving community with him, okay? The whole of that Habakkuk 1 verse says this. I'm going to read the whole thing now. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? Why do you silent? Um, why are you silent while one who is wicked swallows up one who is more righteous than himself? See, that verse, taken as a whole, says this. God, you, you can't tolerate wrongdoing, so why don't you stop people from hurting one another in their, in their evil and in their rebellion? That's a great question. It's one that we're going to talk about somewhere down the line, not today. But please don't get the idea that God turns his back on us when we sin. Nothing could be further from the truth, as we see here in the garden. There, there is some level of, of loss of intimacy between mankind and God as a result of sin, but that is primarily because we pull away from him, not because he pulls away from us. God's love for man does not cease once mankind is expelled and, and barred from the garden. God's providence does not cease. He does not stop hearing their prayers or, or caring for them. God becomes a rescuer, a shepherd. Um, God, uh, Jesus will come as the great rescuer um, in the New Testament to, to once and for all defeat the powers of darkness that would keep us bound up in sin and chaos. Okay? So the other part of this relational friction that comes as a result of sin comes between man and woman. Uh, notice in, in chapter 3, verse 11 and 12, when God asks Adam how he came to know that he was naked and whether he ate from the tree that God told him not to eat from, Adam immediately blames the woman. And he even seems to blame God a little bit. He says, he says this woman who you gave me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and I ate. I think we, we call that throwing somebody under the bus. Right, And yes, it, it does kind of appear from the story that Eve was the instigator. The Satan had, the, had this talk with Eve. Um, the, the serpent, um, who, who we take as Satan, had this... Uh, he was working on Eve, and Eve was persuaded, and she gave some of the fruit to Adam. So she was kind of the instigator. But Adam ate of his own volition, and she didn't have to force it down his throat, Right? But the point here is that there is, there's now friction, and there didn't used to be friction. And that's not the only friction. There is a, there is a relational hierarchy uh, that seems to be established between man and woman uh, for the first time. So in uh, chapter 3, verse 16, um, God says uh, to the woman, your desire, and keep that word in mind, desire, for a minute, your desire will be for your husband, and yet he will rule over you, okay? Um, in the next chapter, in chapter 4, uh, verse 5, God will tell Cain, he will say, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is for you, but you must rule over it, okay? So there's the word desire, there's the word rule in the same one chapter later, okay? Okay. Um, 
Obviously, in chapter 4, verse 5, the, the desire that sin has for Cain is not a healthy desire. It's not a loving desire. It's a desire to, to control and manipulate and, and, and you know, clench um, Cain up in, into its grasp, right? It's the same word. Uh, the Hebrew word is the same word that is used in chapter 3, Right? Your desire will be for your husband. So there, there seems to be um, th- this desire that 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 Eve will have for Adam seems not necessarily to be a good, healthy thing, right? And yet he will rule over you. So there's a there's there's some sort of a a struggle for control, um, the, a, a hierarchy that's put into place as a result of sin. It did not seem to be there beforehand. Okay, um, there is there's some unhealthy relational aspects that come between man and woman that are not present prior to their sin and did not seem to be part of God's creative intent. So, so that's that. Another piece of this is that the serpent is cursed and uh, interestingly seems to have lost his legs. God says, "You're going to move on your belly." and eat dust all the days of your life. Now, I have a little bit of background in um, wildlife science. Um, one of my early degrees um, was, uh, was a wildlife degree uh, years and years and years ago. If you've ever studied snakes, you'll know that uh, um, under x-ray, and, and at least this is true with boa constrictors and pythons. I, I don't know whether it's true with all snakes, but at least with boa constrictors and pythons, if you look at them under X-ray, um, they have what are what are called vestigial limbs. Okay, they are tiny hind leg bones buried in muscles back toward their tail ends, uh, remnants of a time when when they apparently walked up. The the evolutionists will say it's it's a it's just an evolutionary thing that's a remnant of something that used to be useful and is not useful. The idea of vestigial organs or vestigial things, uh, that's, a, that's a common thing in biology. You see that a number of places um, throughout the animal world. Okay. Um, so apparently um, at this time, this serpent was, was walking on its legs and God said, you're going you're gonna to be on your belly the rest of your life. Okay. Uh, don't need to make too much of that. But in, in chapter 3, verse 15, we have this really important statement, okay? God says to the serpent, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So, so there will be this ongoing battle between mankind and the forces of evil represented here by the serpent, okay? But God says, God says of this, this conflict between the, the, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent, God says, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the offspring of the woman that God is referring to here has to be Jesus. The offspring of the serpent, um, which, which we take as the, the forces of, of chaos and darkness, um, as Satan himself, right? Um, the offspring of the serpent will strike his heel, which is a relatively minor wound, but he will strike his head, which is a fatal blow. So this is the first indication of a coming battle 
in which the serpent, um, the adversary, Satan, will finally meet his end. And that will happen on the cross. Uh, Another consequence here is that woman will have pain in childbearing. Sorry, ladies, this is where it all started. Uh, Another result here of mankind's sin is that the, the soil is cursed. Now notice, the whole of God's creation is not cursed. The earth as a whole is not cursed. It's the soil. And what that means is that Adam is going to encounter, he's going to have a tougher time earning a living at this point, from this point on. He's going to struggle against thorns and thistles uh, in his work to make the ground fertile. Okay. And then finally, the final consequence of all this is that death comes to man. So man comes from dust. He gets his life from the very breath of God. Um, the narrative tells us. And he will not be subject to death as long as he lives in proximity to the tree of life. But once he violates this command of God and he eats from the tree of the knowledge of everything, he must live in a different setting. Where does he go? He goes out of the garden into the good and blessed world that God has made. Well, what's in the world? Well, what's not in the world is the tree of life. And his way back to the tree of life is blocked, so his mortality then kicks in. Okay? That's why in the book of Revelation, guess what reappears? The tree of life. Only in the garden can man defy his mortality. All right? Okay, so as a result of all this, we now have a creation that is tarnished by rebellious independence. In the very next chapter, we will have the first murder when Cain kills his brother Abel. Uh, Mankind will grow increasingly corrupt until in chapter 6, God has to wipe the whole slate clean with Noah's flood. God's intent of an intimate and loving fellowship with man seems not to be going very well. But it only seems that way. God certainly knew that this would happen from the start. Okay, none of this, none of this is a surprise to God. None of this is, is, was completely thought out. It, it was all completely thought out ahead of time, right, I think. And God has a plan to repair his tainted and disordered creation. God will now become a rescuer. Just as he subdued chaos and brought order and beauty into the original creation, he will do so again and create anew. God's new creation is a goal in which he will be the rescuer, and in his new creation all will be redeemed. And he will start, again, we're painting in very broad strokes here, he will start this by calling together a people for his own possession, who he will call Israel, and who are to function as his beachhead in the world, as a living testimony to his goodness and power and love before the rest of the world. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll uh, be with us again next week uh, and the week after that and the week after that. We're going to continue this conversation, um, move into some good things together, and I hope you'll be back. We would appreciate it if you'd tell others about the podcast. Uh, If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, um, rate it, and review it on iTunes or Spotify or 
Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you, you go to get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll be back. And remember, you are greatly loved. <laughs>